Hey there, Cases and Controversies listeners. Kimberly Robinson here. Tis the season of giving, and so we've decided to give you another bonus episode, this time from our colleagues over at Bloomberg Tax. It's about a case just argued at the Supreme Court, Rodriguez versus FDIC. But it highlights broader issues that we've written about and talked about here on Cases and Controversies related to the Supreme Court bar. A rare thing about this tax case is that it wasn't argued by a big-name partner. It was argued by an associate, Hogan and Lovell's Michelle Reich. Our colleague H. Abogji spoke to Neil Kadiel, the big-name partner who second-chaired Reich at the argument. H. spoke to Neil a few days before the argument, and they hit on a bunch of topics of interest to Supreme Court watchers and listeners, including the issue of creating opportunities for associates as an important step to creating a pool of lawyers who argue at the Supreme Court more diverse. Here's the interview, and be sure to check out our sneak peek episode for the arguments on the week of December 9th. Neil, hi. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking, how do you think arguing before the Supreme Court affects a person's career, especially an associate's career? Uh, I think it's one of the most um, monumental things you can do as an attorney at any stage in your career, um, even uh, toward the end. Um, But certainly at the beginning, it's a very big deal. And um, I can just tell you that from my personal experience, I was uh, 36 when I argued my first Supreme Court case. It was Guantanamo, and it was a case that I had um, filed in the trial court and brought all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, But when I won that case, it did definitely alter the trajectory of my career in a very significant way. Before that, I was more of a law professor. And after that, as companies and as um, President Obama hired me, I became more of a courtroom lawyer. I'm guessing when clients come to your firm, they're really looking to hire a big name like Neil Katyal to argue before the Supreme Court. How do you convince them that an associate is the right person to argue the case? Supreme Court litigation is very different than other kinds of litigation because most of the clients tend to have one-off cases. It's very rare for a company to have more than one case in the Supreme Court in any given decade. And so you're right to say that when people reach out to me, they're reaching out, you know, they're often reaching out to hire me um, uh, by dint of name and experience and the like. Um, But whenever I get those calls from potential clients, I introduce them right away to my legal team because I do think I have the very best team of associates in the country. And as they get to know my associates and start to see their work firsthand, um, there is a comfort level that can develop. And over time, it becomes actually natural for the uh, uh, for the associate to actually do the argument as opposed to um, be part of the helper, to the helping team for the argument. Can you tell us why is it important for associates to be arguing these cases? What can it do? I mean, my philosophy is, number one, just as a mentor, it's very important for me and I think for all the partners in my group to be able to give these opportunities and generate these opportunities for our younger lawyers so that they can, uh, you know, have the same set of experiences as we can. So that's, you know, the first point, which is just, I think, you know, these are such talented attorneys in a sense they deserve to have these opportunities. But the second thing is there is a kind of very important instrumental quality to this. Uh, I think 
when you stand up and argue a case in the Supreme Court against you know against an opponent who's often really really talented and in front of nine justices who are bringing their A game, you've got to be completely on it and masterful and. One of the most important things you realize as you're up there is that every word in your brief matters, and you can't paper over hard issues or disagreements or the like. You've got to be forthright. And so having associates who've argued in the Supreme Court actually helps every one of our cases because those associates, I think, come back with a certain perspective on uh, on argument and on brief writing. And so you kind of reverse engineer uh, what their experience, and then you bring it back, and it affects every other case. Can having associates argue these cases before the Supreme Court, you know, does it really change uh, what the composition of people who argue at the court looks like? Absolutely. Uh, this is one of the things I care most about. I look around at my bar, the Supreme Court bar, and it is one of the least diverse institutions in the country. And it's very sad to me. Um, and, you know, in, you know, when 17% is the high watermark of arguments done by women, for example, we know something's wrong. When very few African Americans and um, Latinas argue, uh, same thing, and Asians as well. So, um, you know, one one of the things that we've sought to do is to look for diverse associates among every one of those dimensions and others, and to try and get them opportunities. And it does really change the composition of who argues at the Supreme Court if you care about it. So, you know, just in my tiny group of about 15 lawyers, uh, fully four of them right now are in the Solicitor General's office as line attorneys, of the 15 line attorneys who argue cases from that office. Um, four of them are, are Hogan Lovell's associates. Um, one actually just recently left uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, but, you know, that's, I think, a good illustration of how things can change. And of those four people, three are women and one's an Asian-American uh, man. And so um, by getting these opportunities for associates, you are starting to not just change the composition in the law firms in terms of who's arguing at the Supreme Court. You're also doing it in the government as well, because the government tends to hire, you know, some of the very best associates from law firms. Mitch himself is an openly gay man, I think. Was that on your mind when you were thinking about the associates that you were recruiting who would have these opportunities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Mitch is, first of all, one of the most extraordinary lawyers, period, that I've ever worked with. But does it give me a special joy in knowing that he will be one of very few openly gay attorneys to have argued in the history of the United States Supreme Court? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's not why he's arguing the case, but it is a real nice added bonus. Um, Mitch has been unbelievable on this case from the minute that it came in, conceptualizing the certiorari petition in a brilliant way. Um, and really just kind of knowing every intricate fact about bankruptcy law and its intersection with the tax system. And, um, you know, uh, it's it's a real exciting thing uh, to watch him prepare. Um, in fact, last night at 11 o'clock at night, after everyone left our Thanksgiving dinner, I took out his latest moot 
that he did at Georgetown uh, the day before, and I watched it, and I sent him comments at about 1 a.m. Oh, and poor guy. at first, I was like, first, I was like, oh no, you know, I, I, I'm going to be too tired to really give him good feedback. But I was personally energized watching how great he is, and so um, I'm really excited for Tuesday. Are there things that you do at your firm to try to help prep junior attorneys to be ready for this kind of opportunity, even before the case that gets granted at the Supreme Court comes along? You know, in our group of 15 people, they're all devoted to doing Supreme Court litigation. So this is kind of common conversation just around the lunch table about Supreme Court arguments and the like. They're all mooting, you know, me and others um, all the time. So they're very, very familiar with Supreme Court advocacy. So that's, you know, one thing, and that's just waste into their DNA at this point. But then, obviously, when the case is granted, it becomes a different matter. Um, We have a very relentless moot court program that puts the associates through their paces in the most intense way you can imagine throwing question after question after question at them for hours and videotaping it and post-morteming the videotapes, like what I was doing with Mitch last night. Um, So, you know, it's all of those things um, to make sure that they know the answers to every question. And then there's another thing which happens, I'm not going to say, you know, speak of any associate in particular, but there is a psychological dimension often to someone's first argument before the Supreme Court. There certainly was for me, um, and now I've probably um, uh, second-chaired 15 first-time oral advocates at the Supreme Court at this point, and, you know, everyone is different, but, you know, some strong nerves is a pretty common theme among among uh, the group, and uh, there are things that, um, that I've started, I've really done to try and uh, minimize that um, on behalf of any one of these 15 people. And, um, you know, uh, and you're, you're a cheerleader as well, but more than anything, you've got to have your credibility with them because these are all incredibly smart, capable people. So you can't tell them something that isn't true, but you can remind them of their basic fundamental strengths. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, fear can get in the way of, someone's strengths coming out. And so it's real important to try and hit that head on um, with any particular advocate. For listeners who don't know, can you explain what is a moot? What is that process? So a moot is like a mock or a fake Supreme Court hearing. And so we do it that way in that we have a panel of judges, um, not real judges, but associates and partners, um, and sometimes subject matter experts who throw questions at the advocate, and you run it just like a real Supreme Court argument, except that a Supreme Court argument is a half hour per side, and the moots tend to be an hour to hour and 15 minutes of questions. And you're, you know, you do it aggressively, as aggressively as possible sometimes, and sometimes more gently when you're just trying to get in the nuances of the argument and make sure it's developed appropriately. So you try and mix up styles and everything else to try and simulate the hardest part of a real argument. Uh, And at this point in the Supreme Court's um, practice, this Supreme Court is incredibly inquisitive. They throw question after question at you. I think I average almost 66-0 questions 
in a 15-minute oral argument. Uh, excuse me, a 30-minute oral argument. So it's a lot of um, it's a lot of questions, um, and you know that's one thing that makes Supreme Court advocacy different from Court of Appeals advocacy because there it's often 15 minutes per side and not that many questions. But at the court, very different. And so we're really in our moot courts trying to teach the advocate to answer things quickly, try and figure out exactly what the justice is saying, and uh, give them the tidiest, best answer. This term, 40 of the 54 advocates slated in slots to argue before the Supreme Court have argued there before. And Mitch is actually the only one who is an associate who has a slot this term. Why is that so rare? Yeah, you know, it is incredibly rare. And I'll tell you how I got into this, because on my very first day when I was the principal deputy solicitor general, it was January 21st, 2009, I came in and went to the Justice Department to report for work and then went immediately to the Supreme Court as a new deputy, where I watched uh, another one of the career deputies, Ed Needler, argue a case against an associate. And I thought that was the coolest thing, that an associate was here arguing against the legendary deputy solicitor general. And when I came out of the government, it was very important to me that we do the same thing. And so um, I spoke with the folks at Hogan Levels about that, and they said, absolutely, we're behind this. But it's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard from a, you know, it's commitment of a lot of resources. Um, it's sometimes hard to persuade clients and the like. And so you have to build, you know, we've learned that you have to build it up gradually. So with someone like Mitch, yes, this will be his first Supreme Court argument. But you're talking about a guy who's argued already one of the nation's most high-profile cases, the travel ban case in the Ninth Circuit. Um, and you're talking about a guy who's recently argued the asylum ban case in D.C., district court as well. So he is someone who is not um, unfamiliar to high stakes, high publicity litigation. And those arguments are recorded. And so a client can go and listen to them before she or he signs off on, you know, this momentous decision at the Supreme Court. And so, um, you know, we've found that through that gradual process of Uh, exposing an associate to new opportunities and then exposing the client to those opportunities that the associate's uh, been given, um, we can start to generate that trust. It's not always going to work. And, you know, certainly there are some cases that um, clients are going to say, no, you know, Neil, you've got to do it. But um, but there is a set of cases that isn't that. And um, we're really grateful to those clients who um, do that. How do you feel about the future around this? Are you optimistic that more junior attorneys are going to get these opportunities before the Supreme Court? I'm an optimist in general. So I tend to think that the world is going to get better each year, and we're going to see more women arguing, more minorities arguing, um, more openly gay attorneys arguing, and the like. Um, Unfortunately, the numbers haven't moved as fast as I'd like them to. And I think that uh, we in my bar have an obligation, a moral obligation, to do everything we possibly can to try and create these opportunities and to make our Supreme Court bar reflective of the great diversity of our nation. Thanks very much for joining us, Neil.
Thank you. I really appreciate it. Hi there. I'm Amanda Icone, co-host of Talking Tax. Each week, we dig into the biggest tax and financial accounting challenges and opportunities from policy to on-the-ground realities. We bring you corporate leaders, accountants, and industry insiders. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. For more, check us out on news.bloombergtax.com.